Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, because of your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to think this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are fellow partakers with me in this grace. For God is my witness. I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in full knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent, in order to be sincere and without fault, until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look to your word, help us to understand it. Open our hearts and minds to receive it, to remember it, to glean from it all the implications and applications, all the principles which you desire us to learn. We pray that it would sink deep in our hearts and bear fruit, fruit of salvation and fruit of sanctification. And Lord, as I preach your word, I pray that my words would be your words and yet your words would go forth in power and precision to impact the hearts and minds of your people for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We look at this introduction, as we've seen, this is full of thanksgiving and praise for the Philippians. And, and you probably have in your Bible a, a heading. Um, many Bibles have uh, paragraph headings, chapter headings, and most of them are the same. And I know in my Bible it says thanksgiving, and it may say the same thing in yours or something along that lines. And we see Paul's thanksgiving for the Philippians in this introduction, but also throughout the whole um, letter but more than that we see um, his prayers and especially in this um, these few verses he, he begins by saying and this I pray uh, speaking about the content of his prayer for the Philippians as we think about prayer and um, more often than not we um, we pray intercessory prayers those prayers that we intercede for one another we're praying for one another we um, hear prayer requests in church and uh, of people we know and we keep them in our prayers and we have prayer journals and we pray for others and, and that's good and right and it's um, something uh, that is just natural for believers but there are several benefits to intercessory prayer and that go beyond the, the prayers being answered. It's, it's not just that we can intercede for others, that we have that benefit, and that we can hopefully um, see the day when those prayers are answered. But in interceding for others, we are also compelled and provoked to remember 
all of the details of their lives, to remember them. Our, our concern for them is then increased. And our consideration of them is also heightened. And as, as these things happen, as we pray for others, our affection for them grows. And then as, as Paul prays here for the Philippians, our love abounds for them. However, more than provoking God-honoring thoughts and emotions for others, there are other things which happen in the exercise of this spiritual discipline of intercessory prayer, which many times it is a discipline. We have to discipline ourselves to pray for others, to remember others. But a few other things that um, benefit us, a few other things that we see besides answers to our prayers is that when we pray for others, our communion with one another is enhanced, both spiritually and practically. Our, our unity in the body of Christ is strengthened. Uh, there's something that happens on uh, both a spiritual level and a practical level as we pray for one another, that we draw closer to one another because we remember each other. We, we keep each other in our thoughts, our affections, our... Um, provoked for one another, are strengthened, our, our communion with one another is strengthened, and our unity in the body is strengthened. And I always use this illustration. It, it's almost as if um, you picture a wheel and, and God, uh, like a bicycle wheel, and God being the hub, and, and we are, in a sense, all on the spokes. And as we pray to God, and especially as we pray to God and draw near to God, we, in a sense, will be drawing nearer to one another. And especially as we pray for one another, we, we draw near to one another because we're drawing nearer to God and we're getting closer to God. And the closer we get to God, the closer we get to one another. And so our communion is enhanced and our unity is strengthened through praying for one another. But it's not just that. Another benefit is that our partnership in the gospel is also bolstered through our prayers. And, and this is why Paul prays as he does for the Philippians here in, in this, these few verses and, and even prior. He prays for them that their partnership in the gospel would be bolstered. And, and it's not just for them, but notice how he similarly prays the same way for other churches as well. And in, in many of his other letters, in the introductions of his other letters, there's, there's many similarities. Sometimes it's the exact same words. Uh, in, in Ephesians 3, he says this, and right in the middle of that letter, he, he, he talks about the gospel and what, what God is doing in the church and how he is saving people and bringing people together into one body. And then in Ephesians 3.14, he says this, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that he would give you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being firmly rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Similar things we see here in Philippians 1 in verses 9 to 11, that they would grow in love and knowledge, fruitfulness, 
In Colossians 1, he has a, a prayer in which he says in, in, in that introduction, um, in verses 9 to 11 um, of Colossians 1, he says this, For this reason also, since the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, and to ask that you may be filled with the full knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and multiplying in the full knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Similarly, in his prayer to Philemon, he says this to Philemon in verse 4 to 6, I thank my God, always making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the full knowledge of every good thing which is in you for the sake of Christ. You see, we, we can look at all of Paul's letters and we can see those instances in his letters in which he prays for the churches that he writes to and we see the content of his prayers will always um, show uh, a concern for love for one another. He prays for the love for those in the church that would abound still more and more, that it would be genuine. He prays for the fellowship. He prays for uh, that they would grow in knowledge, that they would uh, grow in their walk, that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, that they would grow in their fruitfulness, and that they would also grow in their fellowship and in their faith. We see that here in this passage as well. We see many of the same aspects of prayer as we do in his other letters. Most apparently, here in this, these few verses, as he prays for the Philippians, we see three elements of Paul's prayer here in this passage, which stand out to us. Three elements of Paul's prayer. First, he prays for abounding love. He prays for abounding love. Verse 9, in this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in full knowledge and all discernment. And that, that's the main thing in which he prays for them in these few verses. And then all the other things would, in a sense, uh, contribute to that love or be different aspects of that love as that love would abound more and more. But first and foremost, we see that Paul prays for abounding love. And he prays that their love would abound and that it would abound in three ways. First, that it abounds progressively and continually almost implies that they, they already have love for one another, which we, we all should if we're in Christ, uh, that, that we're, in a sense, given this um, supernatural uh, affinity and affection and love for other believers. But he prays that that love would grow, that it would abound more and more, that it would grow progressively and continually. And primarily because... Our walk cannot be static. We, we, we can't coast. We, we, we can't uh, rest on our laurels. And, and there's always this danger in the Christian life of coasting. Of coasting on past successes. Uh, of coasting on those past times of uh, great prayer and, and study and service. 
But the danger of coasting is that it leads to drifting and then drifting to falling. We must abound. We must grow. We must progress in holiness. You, you, don't, you don't drift into holiness. You, you scratch and bite and claw. <laughs> and sometimes it is uh, three steps forward and two steps back. But you have to strive for holiness. As uh, even the writer to the, the Hebrew says that, that we are to strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Proverbs 4, Solomon writes, The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter until the fullness of day. The way of the wicked is like thick darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. So we must press on, and if we are pressing on, we will uh, grow. Our, Our light will shine brighter and brighter until the fullness of day. But, but he not only prays that their love would abound because of the danger of drifting or falling or um, coasting, but also because love is a primary command of God. Love is a primary command of God. When, when Jesus was approached by all of his, his enemies and, and the scribes and the Pharisees and the, the ruling Jew, Jews, and they, they questioned him, uh, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? He says this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The two greatest commandments. And then he goes on and he says, And on these two commandments hang the whole law and the prophets. Meaning in a sense that he he summarizes the whole law and the prophets. The whole Old Testament known as the law and the prophets. um, But also... They would sometimes say, and the writings, the wisdom writings, but the law, meaning the first five books, the Torah, and then all the prophetic writings. This is the whole Old Testament, the whole canon for the Jews, the law and the prophets. And Jesus says, these two commandments, on these two commandments hang the whole law and the prophets. In other words, if you get these two commandments right, you'll get all of it right. Love is a primary command of God. But Paul, he, he not only prays that their love would abound progressively and continually, continually because there's a danger of drifting and our, our walk cannot be static. And, and not only because love is a primary command of God, but also because love is a characteristic of God. Love is a characteristic of God. God is love. As John writes in his um, epistle, 1 John, this, he writes this letter so that um, the believers can know that they are saved, so that they can have assurance in faith. And, and he, he, brings, uh, he writes about certain tests by which we can evaluate our faith, and, and one of those tests is the love test. 1 John 4, 15, he says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has in us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love has been perfected in us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. We are to love as God is love, and our our love is to grow. Our love is not perfect like God's, definitely, um, but our love is to grow. 
It's not, as, as many preachers and pastors have said, it, it, it's not perfection, it's direction. And we are to grow in, in holiness, and part of that is growing in love. So Paul prays first for the Philippians that their love abounds progressively and continually, and second, that it abounds in full knowledge. It abounds in full knowledge. He says, in this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in full knowledge and all discernment. Full knowledge. And sometimes in, in uh, the, the Christian life and in our Christian culture, um, and recently in, in many churches, sad to say that the, these two concepts of love and knowledge are put at odds with one another. As if you can have one or the other, but not both. But they're, they're intimately connected. They go together. Because you, you can't love what you don't know. It's a, a, a foolish saying which I've commented on in our culture before, that love is love. It's the dumbest thing ever. Love is love. You, you can't define something by itself. That's like, you know, like I said before, that's like caveman talk. Rock is rock. Tree is tree. Love is love. No, you have to define it. There's a standard. There's a definition. And we, we, we define love um, primarily by what, what the, the Bible, those passages, by, by the characteristic of Jesus, by his example, by the characteristic of God, um, by those specific passages such as 1 Corinthians 13, which defines what love is. But it's, it's not just um, love itself, but it's the object of our love which we need to grow in full knowledge of, primarily God. Because God is love, and when we understand God and know God, then we can love others as God loves us. Once again, John writes in 1 John 4, 8, The one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So if we don't love, we don't know God. So in order for our love to abound, as Paul prays in full knowledge, we must know God. And the primary way in which we know God is through the knowledge of the Bible. How he has revealed himself. And that gets into the different disciplines of theology. Yes, we can learn all about God in just studying the Bible and praying, and, and that's primarily how we are to learn about him, but sometimes we need helps. Sometimes we need other books. Sometimes we need to listen to other teachers and preachers that can help us along and, and uh, illuminate things for us. We need to grow in our knowledge of God through our knowledge of the Bible and through the knowledge of theology of understanding uh, how the Bible came to be, uh, this discipline of bibliology, and, and, and then uh, the whole uh, theme of the Bible, and how, how the story of redemption unfolds in progressive revelation in, in, in the discipline of biblical theology. And then we also need to know how to uh, uh, defend the faith in, in apologetics and answer those objections by, through our knowledge of the Bible. We grow in our knowledge of theology, of the Trinity, of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, our knowledge of all the intricate details of salvation through our knowledge of the Bible, and so that our love for God and love for others would grow, would abound still more and more through full knowledge. 
And sometimes, you know, people, you know, the, the whole older you get, you can get set in your ways and, and um, you know, bad habits can, can form or it's harder to create good habits and to do away with bad habits. And, you know, you've heard the saying, uh, you know, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. And some people use that as an excuse. I remember um, one pastor saying uh, he, he was counseling a man and he, he came into his office and he told him, he said, um, you, well, you know, pastor, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. And he said, well, that's right, Bob, but you're not a dog. <laughs> you're not a dog. <laughs> you can learn. I remember recently I, I met an 80-something-year-old man, and he said, um, he just off the cuff, he said, um, he, he found out my name was a German heritage, and he, he spoke a little bit of German to me, and I said, I don't know any German. He says, well, I don't know that much either, but I'm learning. I'm taking classes for German to keep my mind sharp. He's in his 80s. He's saying, I, I remember meeting when I was a hospice chaplain and, and meeting people, and, and they're, they're actually on hospice. They're preparing to die, and they're, they're doing puzzles and, and, and uh, these puzzle brain teasers, brain, brain games to keep their minds sharp because they're afraid of losing their faculties. So you can learn. You can continue to learn, and, and you should continue to learn, and especially you should grow in your knowledge of God, of the Bible, of theology, we should grow in our knowledge of the church, of church history. This is why we're going through a church history series in our adult Sunday school class. We should grow in our knowledge of those saints, those great saints in the past that have gone before us and, and their biographies and, and, and grow in our knowledge of how the church is to function. We should also grow in our knowledge of what is known as practical theology of, or experimental theology of, of working out our salvation, uh, uh, about those practices of, of growing in our sanctification, of exercising our spiritual gifts. We are to grow in our knowledge and all discernment so that our love may abound, our love for God and our love for others. Just as I mentioned, that, that primary chapter or, or passage concerning uh, love in 1 Corinthians uh, 13. And listen to this. It, it not only talks about the attitudes and the actions of love, but there's, there's some other um, interesting things. It says this, love is patience. Love is kind and is not jealous, does not brag, is not puffed up. It does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, is not provoked does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but get this, it rejoices with the truth. Love rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is the characteristic of a biblical love. But one thing that you know, people don't want to think about when they think about love is that um, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Which means that love is, is willing to say, no, that's wrong. No, you're wrong. You're going the wrong way. You're in sin. You need to turn. This is the truth. You're, th that's a lie. That's a false religion. That's a cult. That's a false teacher. This is true. This is what you need to follow. This is what you need to listen to. Love rejoices in the truth. 
And this is what Paul prays, that their love may abound still more and more in full knowledge so that they would rejoice in the truth, that they would know. And so we see that Paul prays for abounding love and that it would first abound progressively and continually and second, that it abounds in full knowledge. And third, which is interesting, that it abounds in all discernment, that their love would abound in all discernment. Which is interesting how he, he, he pairs that with full knowledge and then all discernment. Almost as if uh, they're, they're not the same. They're, they're closely related, but they're, they're not the same. You know, because discernment is more along the lines of the application of knowledge. It's more along the lines of wisdom, of applying knowledge, of, of the, how to discern uh, you know, not only right from wrong, but um, right from almost right. It's talking about those gray areas of life. How do we apply our knowledge? How do we um, apply our love? How do we love in this certain circumstance, this, this situation? And so Paul prays that their love would abound in all discernment and, and discernment primarily concerning their love for God in obeying all his commands. It's interesting that Paul, um, in his letter to the Romans, is this, this comprehensive um, letter dealing with uh, the gospel and the, the plan of redemption, as he spends the first 11 chapters explaining the gospel in great detail, and then he gets into the, uh, chapter 12 and he moves to application. He says this, Romans chapter 12, Therefore I exhort you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And then he says this, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may approve what the will of God is, that which is good and pleasing and perfect. He's saying that... that we need to renew our minds so that we may understand the will of God, that we may approve the will of God in all the areas of life, in all those gray and, and maybe questionable areas that we would be so filled with the knowledge of God and with his word that we would come to a, a situation or a circumstance in life and we could say, no, I'm not going to take door A, I'm going to take door B. I'm not going to choose one, I'm going to choose two. I'm not going to go this way, I'm going to go that way. I'm not going to hang out with that person. I'll hang out with this other person. And our minds need to be filled with, with full knowledge and all discernment so that we can not only make those decisions, but so that we can love right. Paul prays for that their love would abound in all discernment. Discernment concerning their love for God. Discernment concerning their love for one another. Discernment concerning their their love for their spouse or their children or their neighbor or their unbelieving friends? How, how do we love in this particular situation, in this particular circumstance? And, and, and sometimes, and actually oftentimes, you, I, I get people that ask me those questions. Pastor, what do you think about this? What do you think I should do in this situation? What do you think I should do with this person at work or this relationship? It requires discernment. And no one has it completely down. We, we are to grow in that so that we can love God and love our neighbor in those um, certain uh, 
those certain situations and circumstances. Knowledge is important. Discernment is important, and it's, it's intimately linked to our love. This great command, the, the greatest commandment to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. You know, there's a recently, and, and perhaps this has been happening for some time, but it, we've seen it a lot more in recent years um, with this whole industry of uh, Christian music. So many Christian singers and, and gospel singers and gospel bands and, and, um, that have records. There's a whole industry. And what's sad is um, that sometimes you can see it coming, but there's been many of them who have fallen away from the faith recently. Um, and pr- probably because, you know, it's getting harder and harder to live as a believer um, faithfully in this culture. And uh, so their faith is being tested and it's being shown to not be real. But, you know, some of them we can see it doesn't shock us so much. But there's others. And recently I've been, you know, listening to a certain, um, certain artist. And uh, she sang rich theological songs and, and just going through and looking at... Um, I recently come across some uh, interview she did about deconstructing her faith, about, in a sense, falling away. And, and I, I wonder, how, how can you sing such deeply theological songs with such rich lyrics about God, about the Bible? And, and I think the answer is this, that, that her and others, they, they didn't have a faith built on objective truth and the knowledge of God, but a faith that was built on emotion a faith that was built on community, a faith that was built on tradition, a faith that was built on all the trappings and, and quite honestly, the good things of Christianity, but really not the, the substance of the, the, the word of God, the objective truth of God. They, they, they had um, questions which they never answered. They, they never thought to answer. They never grew in their knowledge of God. They never grew in... in What's even worse is because they didn't really grow in their knowledge of God and all discernment, then chances are they didn't really love. Their love was probably a false love, a superficial love, a worldly love, an emotional love, not a, not a God-honoring love. So this is what Paul prays for the Philippians that their love would abound in full knowledge and all discernment. And so he prays first for abounding love and that it would abound more and more. And then second, he prays for an authentic faith. An authentic faith. Verse 10, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and without fault until the day of Christ. Paul prays for abounding love, and then second, he prays for an authentic faith, a, a true faith, a faith which is tested, as he says, that you may approve the things that are excellent, a faith that has been tested, that is tested, that a faith that can test other things in the Christian life, other things in the world. He prays for an authentic faith, a real faith, a genuine faith, a sincere faith, 
And in other passages, in 1 Corinthians 13, he commands the Corinthians to test yourselves, to see if you are in the faith. And he prays for a faith which is tested, and as he commands the Corinthians to test themselves. But it's not just that we are to test ourselves concerning our faith or, or that we're commanded by the word of God, but there's also a sense that God tests us. The Bible says that God tests the heart of, hearts of men. When we read it, Psalm 66.10, is, um, the psalmist is reflecting upon uh, God's discipline, God's judgment. He, he says, the psalmist says, For you have tested us, O God. You have refined us as silver is refined. This picture of, of metallurgy, of, of refining, it's, it's used uh, several times in the Old Testament concerning faith, concerning the Word of God, um, concerning our walk with God, our genuineness. Uh, sometimes God brings trials and afflictions. He brings discipline to test us, to grow us, so that our faith would grow, that it would be strengthened, but also so that we would know that our faith is sure. This picture of, of metallurgy that they, they do today, um, and they did back then, that you would take an ore, or a piece of ore, whether silver or gold, and then you'd heat it up in a pot. And, and the, the, the heavier, more precious metal would sink to the bottom, and the lighter chaff and rock and whatever would rise to the top, and then you would cool it off, and then you'd wipe away that chaff the, the, or, or the, the, the sludge, and... Um, and then you'd have a pure metal, and then you could heat it up again and, and bring more um, impurities to the surface and wipe it off and, and do that process over and over it again until you have a refined, pure uh, gold or pure silver. And, and there is a sense that God does this to us in our own sanctification. We can see instances in our life where God has, in a sense, turned up the heat on us. And we see the sin bubble up and out of our hearts and our minds. We, we, we complain and, and we get angry and frustrated and irritable and bitter. And then we realize that's sinful. And I need to repent of that. One of my former pastors, he used to say, he'd say, you know, most of us think we're pretty good until God turns up the heat. Puts us in a trial. And then we see, we see the the impurities, they come out. They come out, up, out of the surface. And, and God is refining us. He's refining us. He's uh, testing our faith. And he's also showing us whether or not our faith is real. John MacArthur, he writes this in his commentary concerning this verse and these words, approve and excellent. He says this, approve is described as the assaying of metals or the testing of money for authenticity. This, uh, this term excellent, or the, the Greek term underlying it, it means to differ. Believers need the ability to, to distinguish those things that are truly important so that they can establish the right priorities. That He goes on, he says, sincere and without offense, or sincere and without fault. That sincere means genuine, and, and may have originally meant tested by sunlight. Tested by sunlight, it's the, the underlying Greek word would allude to that, being tested by sunlight. And MacArthur goes on to say that in the ancient world, dishonest pottery do dealers filled cracks in their inferior products with wax before glazing and painting them. 
making worthless pots difficult to distinguish from expensive ones. The only way to avoid being defrauded was to hold the pot to the sun, making the wax-filled cracks obvious. Dealers marked their fine pottery that could withstand sun testing as sinicera. That's Latin for without wax. Without wax. Or without offense. It also can be translated blameless, referring to relational integrity. He goes on, he says, Christians are to live lives of true integrity that do not cause others to sin. This is where we get this, this term sincera from sincere, genuine, true, without fault, without impurities, um, without anything added, that we are pure, we are sincere. And, and we know that through our testing. As God tests us, as we test ourselves, so that we may approve the things that are excellent. Paul prays for this, for the Philippians, that they would have an authentic faith, a faith which is tested, a faith which is sincere, and, and finally, a faith which perseveres. It perseveres because it is true. As he says, in order to be sincere and without fault, until the day of Christ. Until the day of Christ. There's this doctrine throughout the Bible that we spoke about. It. We can clearly see it in Philippians 1.6 as Paul says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That same day, this day of judgment, this day of testing, this day of revealing um, what is true and what is false, and also a day of reward for our um, faithfulness, of eternal rewards. But there's this doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. That those who are true, those who have an authentic faith, will persevere until the day of Christ. Until that day in which they're tested. But until that day comes, we are to test ourselves. We are to examine ourselves to be sure that we are in the faith. Paul prays for this. For this authentic faith. One commentator writes this, that in Christian conduct and the exercise of love, such factors as one's influence on others as well as the effect on oneself must be considered. The question should not only be, is it harmful, but is it helpful? The goal in view is a day of Christ in which every believer must stand before his Lord and give an account of his deeds. This sobering and joyous prospect for the believer should have a purifying effect on his life. That we know that we will be tested. We know that there is a day of judgment. There's a day of judgment for all peoples. Definitely for those people who are outside of Christ. For those who have um, yet to repent and believe upon Jesus Christ for salvation. There is eternal judgment awaiting them. But even for us, there is an, a judgment for how we have used our time, talents, and treasures. For the glory of Christ or whether we've used them all for our own comfort and pleasure. So we see that Paul prays first for an abounding love, and second for an authentic faith, and third for apparent fruitfulness. For apparent fruitfulness. Because he, he, he prays that they would approve the things are, that are excellent in order to be sincere and without fault until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory of and praise of God. He prays that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness. He prays for apparent fruitfulness. That they would be fruitful believers. That they would bear fruit. And for a fruit 
and a fruitfulness that comes from within. Because he says that uh, he, he prays that they would be filled, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness. An, an, an internal fruit, a fruit from the heart, a, a, a genuine fruitfulness, a, a, a genuine righteousness flowing out of them. Genuine love. Paul says in Romans 12 and verses 9 to 13 as he um, is going into this application of the gospel and he says, Let love be without hypocrisy. By abhorring what is evil, clinging to what is good, being devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, being fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in affliction, being devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, pursuing hospitality. All these things are to come out of our heart. These fruits that are to come out of a genuine heart, a genuine faith, a, a, a genuine uh, righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ. And, and it's interesting because um, different commentators take this different ways. Because uh, as James Montgomery Boyce says in his commentary, he writes this, this does not refer to internal righteousness, love, joy, peace, and so on. These are the fruit of the Spirit. He says concerning this verse, it refers to what is seen externally. The fruit of righteousness is the fruit that righteousness produces. This is to be seen in the innumerable acts of kindness and service to which every believer in Jesus Christ is called. He's saying what, what Paul is praying for here, what he's praying for is that um, the Philippians would bear fruits of righteousness which comes out of their heart, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God, that there would be apparent fruitfulness. But at the same time, there's two types, as, as John MacArthur has said, there's two types of spiritual fruit. There's action fruit. Those acts, and there's attitude fruit. Attitude fruit, which is displayed in Galatians 5 as we um, read that, that famous passage on the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. Those fruits, which are more emotions and attitudes, there's that attitude fruit, and then there's the action fruit that is the works, the things that we do for Christ that, that everybody else can see. And as even James Montgomery Boyce says that this does not refer to internal righteousness, the fact of the matter that it, it must flow from internal righteousness, that, that action fruit must come from attitude fruit. Action fruit without attitude fruit is hypocrisy. It's, it's superficial fruit. Our fruit should abound in, in love and good deeds. But that fruit starts from our heart, as, as uh, Paul says here, as he prays here. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ. There's, there's this concept uh, um, concerning holiness, concerning our sanctification. And you've probably heard it, and I, I've said it before, this, this principle of head, heart, hands. Head, heart, hands. Um, is taken from uh, Romans uh, 6, 6, 17. Thanks be to God that you have obeyed from the heart that doctrine which was delivered unto you. That you have obeyed from the heart. That, that, that doctrine that came through your mind 
it engaged your heart and your will and it worked itself out in, in works in your, your, your hands, in the things that you do, in your behaviors, in your habits. Head, heart, hands. But other authors have taken this a step further. Head, heart, hands, habits. As we understand the will of God and we grow in our knowledge, as our love abounds in, in full knowledge and all discernment and, and that engages our hearts and our hearts are filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes out in, in righteous works and deeds. And all of that comes through Jesus Christ. Paul prays for an apparent fruitfulness that comes from within. Second, that comes through Jesus Christ. That, that this, is, this is not in and of ourselves. It, it is coming out of ourselves. It, but it's ultimately a, a, a divine fruitfulness. A, a supernatural fruitfulness. It, it comes through Jesus Christ. Unbelievers, uh, many people in false religions and cults, they can do good works. They do many good works. Sometimes they do um, greater works than some believers. But it's not true spiritual fruit because their, their hearts are not changed. Their, their, their motives aren't right. They're not doing it for God. They're more often than not doing it to either earn favor with God or to... Um, uh, promote themselves, self-righteousness. Our, our fruitfulness must come from within, and it, it must come through Jesus Christ. Turn with me to John chapter 15. The, the, this famous chapter uh, or passage concerning um, our walk with Christ and, and our own fruitfulness. As Jesus tells his disciples that uh, um, Uh, on the night before, night in which he was betrayed, and he tells his disciples, he says, I am the true vine, and my father is a vine grower. It, it, there's a reason why there's a little bit more background to that. Because, um, in essence, uh, Israel, one, one, of the, um, one of their, uh, I guess, logos or, or, or something that their, their identity was that they were the vine. There is even um, arches or or um, into Jerusalem, or, or, or pictures um, of a vine, that they were the true vine, they were um, God's vine. But Jesus says, I am the true vine, my Father is the vine grower. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he cleans it, so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit from itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. And this passage in no way um, implies that you can uh, lose your salvation or that you can fall away. What, what it is implying is Paul is speaking in, in, to uh, disciples uh, in, in kind of a Jewish background, talking about um, those who are truly his, who are true branches, ra rather than uh, many of the other Jews who are not true, and they're not really connected to the vine. They look like they're part of the, 
community of faith, but they're really not because they're not bearing fruit. And the same is true in a Christian context. That there's many um, people that come into church and they, they may um, externally look like they're a part of um, the church, the true church, they're, they're a believer, but um, after more examination and, and um, after years go by, it, it may appear, it may seem, may come to um, realization that they really aren't a part of the vine because there's no fruits. And sometimes we don't know. Sometimes we don't know, as, as even Jesus says, there are tares among the wheat. We all, some will only know until the last day. But if we're truly his, we will bear fruit. And that fruit comes from within. And it comes through Jesus Christ. And third, it comes out to the glory of God. It comes out to the glory of God because Paul prays for apparent fruitfulness. Apparent fruitfulness, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That's how we know that it's true spiritual fruit, that it's done for the glory of God. It, it's, it's done uh, in his name. It, it's, it's done for him. It, it's done to make him known. As even Paul says, you know, he's talking about the gospel in Romans, at the end of Romans chapter 11, he says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. If we are to bear true spiritual fruit and apparent fruitfulness, it, it comes from our heart, but it really comes through Jesus Christ and it goes out to the glory of God. Even as Jesus says, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. This is the ultimate end. This is the, in fact, as Jonathan Edwards wrote his book, the end for which God created the world. And the answer to that is for his glory. Everything is for his glory. Even as we heard in Sunday school this morning, soli deo gloria. The, the, the call of the uh, reformers, to God be the glory alone. God will not share his glory with anybody else. And even as Paul says, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. What do you have that you have not received? And if you received it, why do you boast? E e even our faith, we, we, we can't boast in our faith. Our faith comes from God. Everything comes from God. All, all our, the things we have, our abilities, our talents, our, our money, uh, everything comes from God. And ultimately, because it's all about God. And so if we um, come to church, if we do things for ourselves, if we do things for self-promotion or, or um, for what we can get out of it, and nice things, good things, our, our, our love is superficial. It's not real. Our, and, and it may be because our faith isn't real. God will not share his glory with another all things come from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. And certainly there's some among us that, you know, we, we've been in church. We've, we've heard the, the Bible preach. We've been to Sunday school. Or, 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 or maybe you're just coming for the first time and, and you don't know all that much. Um, but you know that there is a God. And that you are accountable to him. He has created you for his glory. He has created you for a purpose. You, you don't live a meaningless existence. 
There is a purpose for your life. But maybe you're not living according to that purpose. And maybe it's because you've never come to God. You've never uh, uh, acknowledged your own sinfulness. You've never acknowledged your brokenness. You never acknowledge that you're wandering through this world meaningless, uh, uh, living a meaningless existence and, and just doing whatever feels right in the moment. You've been created for a purpose. All of us have been created for a purpose. And even those who are in the faith, we have a purpose here on earth. We have a purpose as a church. We have a mission. We're supposed to live according to that purpose, to, to bear fruit, to uh, glorify God, to let our light shine before others that people may see and that we would call others into that light to seek Him, to know Him, to understand Him, to have a purpose. And this is a purpose that, that you would uh, glorify Him you glorify him first and foremost by repenting from your sins and believing upon Jesus Christ for salvation. And then as you grow in him, you proclaim that message to others. This is ultimately what, what Paul prays for because his ultimate goal, everything he does is for the glory of God. Everything he does is to proclaim this great gospel which, by which he has been saved that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners as he says, of whom I am the foremost. But I have received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who would believe upon him for eternal life. This is Paul's life verse. This is my life verse. This is the reason why he does everything he does, why he plants churches, why he disciples, why he ministers to others, why he proclaims the gospel. And it, it's also why he writes this letter to the Philippians that they would grow in their uh, faithfulness, in their love for one another, in their fellowship, that the gospel would abound. And so he prays for true fellowship in the gospel so that this gospel would be proclaimed to the ends of the earth that people around them would see that these people are different. Something's different here. There's a love that I cannot explain. There's a faith that I cannot explain. They, they, they're fruitful, and, and I, I can't really explain it. What happened? Who is your God? This is why Paul does everything he does, and this is what he calls the Philippians to do, why he calls them to be faithful and fruitful. And it's why we are to be faithful, to be fruitful, and why we are to abound in our love for one another. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this letter. We thank you for this lesson. We thank you for these verses. And Lord, we pray that we would indeed abound in our love for one another, that we would have an authentic faith, that we would have apparent fruitfulness, that our faith and love and fruitfulness would be known to others, and that we would grow, that we would press on towards holiness, that we would um, be careful of drifting, of coasting, of sliding and falling away into sin. Help us to uh, turn from our sins, to turn to you. And Lord, I pray, especially for those who do not know you here, that they might come to know you as Lord and Savior and they may bear fruits of righteousness and may glorify you with their lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.